This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Feminism for the 99%, A Manifesto, by Cynthia Rutza, Tithi Bhattacharya, and Nancy Fraser. Unaffordable housing, poverty wages, health care, climate change, border policing. Not the issues you ordinarily hear feminists talking about. But don't these issues impact the vast majority of women globally? Taking as its inspiration the new wave of feminist militancy that has erupted globally, this manifesto makes a simple but powerful case. Feminism shouldn't start or stop with seeing women represented at the top of society. It must start with those at the bottom and fight for the world they deserve. And that means targeting capitalism. Feminism must be anti-capitalist, eco-socialist, and anti-racist. This is a manifesto for the 99%. And if you haven't already, check out my recent Dig interview with Tithy on this very manifesto. Feminism for the 99%, a manifesto by Cynthia Rutza, Tithi Bhattacharya, and Nancy Fraser. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This, of course, is a socialist podcast, so we're rather overdue for an episode that's just generally an overview of socialism, its history, present, and future. Fortunately, Jacobin editor Bhaskar Sunkara recently wrote a book about just that, The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. And while some of the book is indeed a case for socialism, much of it is an analysis of socialism's history. Marx, the U.S., Germany, China, Sweden, Russia, and beyond, identifying what went right and wrong so that we might learn some lessons today and build socialism in our time. This introduction that I am recording now is the first one I've recorded in a while without the final stretch of book editing and fact-checking dominating my life. As of Monday, it's out of my hands and to the copy editor at Verso. It's a good feeling because six or so weeks of 14 to 16-hour days with no weekends was getting to be a bit much But it's also a good feeling because I couldn't have written All-American Nativism without you supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. And that's because, believe it or not, writing a book for a scrappy left-wing publisher is not a money-making proposition. To the contrary, it has so far been a decisively money-losing one. Without this pod job that your Patreon contributions make possible, I could not have afforded to write this book on the side. This podcast also provided me with the time to read a lot of the books whose authors I interviewed on the show 
and which ultimately shaped my own book's analysis, including Aziz Rana, Kelly Lytle Hernandez, May Nye, Kathleen Ballou, Matthew Fry Jacobson. This is an unusual podcast, and we can only keep it up and running strong and also meet our political goal of ensuring that everyone can listen to this analysis regardless of their ability to pay, because those of you who can afford to contribute do so at patreon.com slash the dig. And so if you've been meaning to contribute for a while and just keep forgetting to do so, today is a great day to contribute at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We have so many good guests coming up, including Sylvia Federici, Nura Erekat, Michael Dawson, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, John Patrick Leary, Matthew Lassiter, Lisa Dugan, Samuel Delaney, Tom Sugru, Adam Getachew, and Alex Gorovich. Anyhow, thanks, and here's Bhaskar Sunkara, founding editor and publisher of Jacobin, a columnist with Guardian U.S., and the author of The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality from basic books. Bhaskar Sankara, welcome back to The Dig, a podcast affiliated with a socialist magazine called Jacobin. Thanks for having me. I, I, I appreciate it. You know, I did I did make this a condition of our continued sponsorship, but I'm glad you <laughs> you you came around to the idea by your own volition. I, uh, I, I, I recognize power when I see it. You're um, a, true, a true Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> you, you note that when you were in high school, as a high school socialist, being a socialist was pretty strange. And it was probably even stranger when I was a high school socialist quite a few years prior to that in the late 90s. And I remember it wasn't just that it was weird. Even though I considered myself a socialist, I wasn't ever thinking about organizing a socialist movement or party. I was organizing around issues like sweatshops and and globalization. Looking back, how different are things now just a few decades later? Well, I remember when I was in college, there was kind of a debate among a lot of the young democratic socialist chapters where some of us wanted to create chapters and organizing committees that were called like the democratic left at the George Washington University and things like that that were more more innocuous. And in fact, it was born out of the realization that socialists are such a tiny minority, we had to be part of a much broader movement and coalition to survive, but it also reflected a lack of confidence. Like, oh, we happen to be socialists, but, you know, not everyone's going to be a socialist, and this is kind of off-putting. And ultimately, the argument that I made, and and David Dualde, who's a longtime DSA member and was then the YDS uh, national director, uh, made was that they're going to call socialists anyway, and social democracy to Americans is just as alien as the word democratic socialism or socialism. So we might as well try to reclaim the word and put it into some sort of context. But it is completely different. Now it's like, 
you know, it's become in both good and bad ways, almost like a subculture, right? There's uh, tens of thousands of people who will put the rose emoji in their Twitter names. First of all, you know, I recently got engaged and I associate the rose emoji still with like the bachelor because uh. I used to watch the bachelor and bachelorette every, every Tuesday uh, with my, uh, with my gr- then girlfriend, now fiance. So we totally co-opted that. We took that and, and it really is a completely different environment, but a lot of the same ideas that we're pushing, a lot of the same sentiments um, are are still there, right? So it's not a completely different movement, but we're in a, a new era of confidence, and a lot of us just want to keep this moment going. You know, we want to actually turn this this into something lasting and tangible, which means building institutions and and doing things to to make it make it so that it's not just something when people are just telling their kids or grandkids or talking about it 30, 40 years ago. Do you remember that four or five years when everyone all of a sudden was a socialist? What happened to that? Yeah, it's not supposed to end up as like a Woodstock war story. Um, w- w- what does the mainstreaming of socialism mean right now? You, you don't talk about Gramsci in your book, I don't think, but, but I have a Gramsci-type question for you. W- what role do you think ideas have in relation to the material conditions that create the possibility for major change at, at very particular moments in history? Well, I do talk about Gramsci a little bit just in the context of hegemony and yeah. what he actually meant by it. And what he meant by the idea of hegemony wasn't just building a set of ideas and those ideas slowly becoming the new common sense. But in fact, what he meant by it was an extension of kind of this Russian discussion of like yoking. So the yoking of working class interests with the interests of the peasantry behind a new coalition that has enough power and weight to make change. And I think that right now, what we could possibly be seeing is a yoking together of the interests of a organized working class with kind of a more precariously employed or unemployed uh, uh, working class people with students, with kind of certain elements of what I guess you would call a D-class, middle class into a broad-based popular coalition for change. So when I think about hegemony, I think about Gramsci, I think about the actual practical applications of this. Like, So what's the actual broad-based movement we're seeing now? Well, I think it's really the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, the fight for Medicare for all, um, the fight now that we're seeing uh, for uh, criminal justice reform. All these things are are movements that take both ideas, but more importantly, also a social base. One historical case that you point to is the rise of workers' movements in Europe in the late 19th century. You write that there was urbanization and industrialization, which created the conditions for people to be pissed off. But then socialists were there, and they had a credible explanation of what was happening to people, who and what they should be pissed off at, and what they should do about it. Yeah, it's objective and subjective, I guess, is one way of putting it, right? So there were certain facts about industrial capitalism that, for example, capitalism created the working class. You know, the working class is not just a regular identity. It actually means something objective. You know, it means a relationship that working people have to production. The fact that these people that used to be maybe self-sufficient peasants are now in these cities hoarded together and forced to sell their ability to labor for cash. And that's the only way they survive. 
But that doesn't necessarily follow that working class politics should necessarily equal socialist politics. There are certain factors about what it means to be working class that makes it easier to develop collective politics. So, for example, me and you, if we are in a bad situation at work and we are editors at a uh, publication, but we have particular sets of skills, um, so we're not just a regular sub-editors, we might be able to go to our boss and we might be able to say, well, you know, I'm going to go to a competitor unless you give me a 20% raise. That's something that, you know, a certain layer of even the working class uh, can do. But normally it's kind of this, these other classes can, can have that kind of conversation. But if you're a regular worker and you go to your boss and you say, well, I'm going to go, I'm working at the CVS. I'm going to go to this Rite Aid down the street unless you pay me 20% more. Your boss will probably say like, F off, <laughs> you know, go away, <laughs> um, go enjoy, have fun at that, that Rite Aid. But if you go with, let's say, 20, 30 colleagues and you say, well, we're forming a union and we're demanding 10% higher wages and we're going to go on strike unless you accede to our demands, you know, this is something that um, that actually has a power to change things. So there are factors in this socialization, this process of the creation of the working class uh, that went along with industrial capitalism that made it much easier to imagine a form of collective politics. But we shouldn't take for granted that this mass politics should have necessarily have been uh, socialist in general or in particular Marxist. So it took really brilliant feats of organizing. It took really incredible and intelligent tactical um, maneuvering and the creation of new forms of rhetoric. So the subjective creation of identity to go along with this objectively created uh, class, in other in other words. And it really is quite a miracle that, you know, if you look at what Marx is talking about in the initial sets of demands in the Communist Manifesto, the fact that an actual movement arose that was able to win something like the eight-hour day, that was able to win a whole host of social protections, that was able to win the weekend, you know, God rested on, on the seventh day, on a Sunday, you know, Saturday came from the labor movement and came particularly from <laughs> socialists within the labor movement. And, and these were things that, that it's not just history wasn't on this course by, by default. It took organizers, it took activists, and it took politics to, to get there. As Marx phrased it, people make history, but not under conditions of their own choosing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's one of the few out-of-context Marx quotes that almost always fits. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of them that are thrown out there, but that one, uh, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory and self-contained. <laughs> Before we get into a bunch of history and then the present of socialist politics, I want to do what your book does at the beginning of the book, which is sketch out what a socialist future might look like. You emphasize that it's important to imagine what socialism might be, and you argue that this is important for at least two reasons. One, it makes it something tangible that people can imagine actually existing and thus work towards. And two, I think a theme running through your book is it might help prevent catastrophic errors, horrific co-optations, and really cruel abuses. S say a little about why you think it's important to, to, to think ahead like that. So Marx famously rejected the idea of mapping out a vision of, of what exactly a social society should look like. And there's a few reasons for this, but he famously denounced uh, writing recipes for the cookshops of the future. 
So Marx, for one, was writing in an environment when utopian socialism was a dominant strand in the socialist movement. And the utopians, to kind of caricature what they were trying to do, they wanted to kind of exit society, create a perfect model of what a socialist community could look like. Uh, Then they would hope that this model would be so attractive or would be so efficient or so whatever that it would generally just overtake everything and people would voluntarily move to socialism. It would be like the demonstration effect. It's like the back to the land movement but a century earlier. Exactly. And a lot of what they, as Marxists, were saying was, well, socialism isn't really just a trans-historical ideal of cooperation and justice. In fact, there's something new about this environment of industrial capitalism. There's something new about this creation of a working class. There's something new about the tremendous abundance created by capitalist industrialization that enables us to form a different sort of society. A communism, I guess, not on the basis of scarcity, but on the basis of abundance. And also, beyond that, if socialism is meant to be a radically democratic form of government, then it can't just be a model dreamed up by a few intellectuals. It had to come from this working class movement. It had to come from its unions, its cooperatives, and its other forms of of democratic life. And it would be up to those future generations that actually construct socialism to decide what it would look like. And this all made perfect sense in Marx's day. But today in 2019, we're living in a world where socialism has lost some of its innocence. It's had a lot of triumphs. I think socialists have made the world and societies like the one we live in today far more humane. But it's also had its share of tragedies and it's had its share of you know, horrors and crimes. So people have seen models of societies that call themselves socialists in which it's meant scarcities, it's meant kind of long you know, lines, it's meant kind of famine, it's meant um, the gulag and all these other, other things too. And it's too simple for us to just say, well... You know, that's not real socialism, and we could have real socialism. Just trust me, and, you know, I'll leap forward into socialism, and we'll have full communism tomorrow, sponsored by the DSA, and everyone will be much, much happier. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we actually need to prove to people that another world is possible, because it's not just that people don't think this better world is politically possible. They also, I think, question whether it's technically possible. So what I wanted to lay out was a minimum vision of what a society that fits the definition of socialism looks like. And for me, socialism isn't this final stage that we leap into. It's the start of a long process of politics, a process that does involve deliberation, that does involve us figuring out how well do we need market mechanisms for this? Can we do this by planning? Whoa, this arrangement of society requires way too many meetings. Oh, this kind of resembles some of the old inequities that we were used to and we rejected in capitalism. You know, this kind of kind of thing. But a society that still nonetheless fits our definition of a social society and that it's a society without exploitation and without forms of oppression. But even that, even let's say when it comes to oppression, you know, we have to think about socialism as a as a starting point. You know, you can't eliminate inequities, let's say, based on biological sex that that have existed for thousands of years 
and kind of the resulting kind of systems of, of oppression that, that have that have existed for thousands of years overnight. Um, so I, I think of this as kind of a long process. It still involves politics. It still involves organizing. It still involves a continued forms of anti-racism and anti-sexism, you know, in a um, in a social society. There's no socialist end of history. No, I, I don't think there is. Um, I also don't think there's necessarily anything more than just the horizon of something we might call communism, you know, a society with um, such extreme forms of democracy and such forms of superabundance that we no longer need, let's say, a state to mediate our differences or a state to transfer knowledge between generations or, or do all sorts of other things. So in other words, if in a social society where you eliminate class antagonism, there might still be other forms of disputes that we need to mediate. You know, if we need to figure out a way to cross the Hudson River and I want to build a tunnel and you want to build a bridge, there's all sorts of different factors, including broader social factors, that might be the reason why I want a tunnel, you want a bridge. We still need a way to mediate our differences and have democratic hearings and debates. And that's complicated and messy. That requires some sort of state. Though though socialism will certainly abolish the distinction between city dwellers and bridge and tunnel people. Uh, yeah, well, I think we'll just elevate the bridge and tunnel people to higher higher state. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I I grew up in Westchester. We we're contingu- contiguous. You know, I, we could get into the city. We could get into the city without crossing a bridge. <laughs> well, uh, on that note, one major misconception that Stalinism and other things has created is over what Marx and Engels meant by the dictatorship of the proletariat, which wasn't authoritarianism at all, but rather a system where the working class ruled instead of the capitalist class. How did they distinguish socialism as the dictatorship of the proletariat from communism? So I think in general, what they saw as the dictatorship of the proletariat was a radically democratic state in which producers figured out ways to manage the uh, production of goods and the distribution of goods, generally through a through a plan, um, and for the common interest um, of of this uh, society, and they definitely didn't uh, associate dictatorship with the rule of one person or one party or one central committee. Now, communism was just vaguely alluded to, and it was alluded to kind of just as a horizon of a society in which our needs um, in terms of our material needs, but also our cultural needs are met in such abundance that, you know, one kid, um, you know, um, study uh, criticism and write and then fish and hunt all in the same day. You know, that's kind of, that was meant as a just broad uh, vision of the, of the future. And even uh, Trotsky in Literature and Revolution has a similar turn of phrase when he talks about the average man kind of reaching the heights of like a a Da Vinci or something like that. And there was a certain utopian beauty to people who were living in intensely unequal and backward societies looking out towards history and thinking that, well, maybe there's a different way. You know, maybe, in fact, all this misery and all this production for, for private greed uh, could be flipped on its head. And instead, we could coordinate production in such a way that average human beings, including all these human beings that, let's say, Engels himself saw personally in all these factories and factory towns that he documented, these people huddled together in, in Manchester, England, he saw them as potential architects, not of their own personal lives, but of society as a whole. And that's a really inspiring vision. 
And I think we need a dose of that utopianism, but we also need to figure out a way to to actually turn it into practice. So I would say that, you know, I share the utopian um, dream, but I think what I want to present is a model that, and a vision of society that we could reach potentially in 20, 25 years. You know, I don't want to necessarily just give people the 200-year vision of a different, a different society. I want to talk about the socialist movement as it existed during Marx and Engels' time and the period that followed, the heyday of the Second International in the late 19th and early 20th century. Explain the socialist politics of this era in, in general and how it was that social democracy and socialism, which we tend to think of as such different things today, were synonymous at the time. So it sort of gets to what I was saying before when I was talking about how with the emergence of capitalism, you see the creation of this industrial working class, and this class has certain objective characteristics, um, but it is not yet a class for itself, right? It doesn't necessarily have a concrete set of politics uh, attached to it. So the really incredible thing is the Marxist playbook in the abstract kind of um, starts to happen, right? Everything uh, starts to be fulfilled in that this class goes from being isolated and weak and impoverished to forming unions and forming educational uh, associations and eventually forming political parties. So collective action is very difficult. It's very difficult to convince you know, even one workplace of people to stand together and to fight for something in common. It's hard to you know, pass a strike authorization vote at your local kind of shop if you ever tried to do that. But what we managed to see was not just the creation of, of local interests against all odds uh, propping up, but we managed to amalgamate together these local interests into regional and national and even international bodies of solidarity. So this all happened through really incredible organizing and, and agitation. So there's a lot of different names for these these movements. They called themselves different things at different times. And uh, Marx and Engels for a long time called themselves communists. And uh, there was other segments of the workers' movement that were anarchists. But eventually social democracy came to be adopted as kind of a catch-all term for these early workers' parties. And the origin of the world is very simple. We wanted to fight for radical forms of democracy. We want to win political democracy. We want to win economic democracy. And the term social democracy just kind of comes from comes from there. So social democracy, pre-World War I social democracy, is kind of the common ancestor of all strains of the modern socialist movement. So on the left out of pre-war social democracy, you have communism reemerging. So these are the people who said social democracy was no longer real social democracy. So we're going to go back to the old original term, communist. Uh, you have also a certain wing of social democracy that said, you know, we're slowly abandoning some of our efforts to go beyond capitalism. And we're going to settle for doses of socialism within capitalism. They're the social democrats. You had other people who just continued to call themselves socialist. So, you know, I think that we need to kind of separate post World War One social democracy from pre-war social democracy, but especially post-war social democracy from uh, pre-war social democracy, and uh, that's that's kind of something where 
leftists who are used to just hearing social democrat as a pejorative sometimes forget that uh, at the end of his life, Engels uh, was very gladly called himself a social democrat and part of the social democratic movement. And it didn't mean that he was some, you know, tame liberal. It meant that, you know, he was part of this mass movement that was, he thought, on the verge of, of overcoming capitalism and constructing something else. Well, the the most powerful social democratic and socialist party of, of that era was the German Social Democratic Party. And you write that the party's 1891 effort program was this really kind of complicated uh, combination of, of radicalism and pragmatism. Well, why was it Germany, of all places, that such a powerful socialist movement took root? And how was it that the SDP built power? Yeah, so I guess one thing that Germany had to its advantage was it was the scene of a you know, really exploding, very large industrialization. So Prussian industrialization, the creation of heavy industry there, still lagged behind Britain. But it was a major, major industrial power. And it combined this with a very regressive political system. So uh, social democrats were able to be both the party of economic reforms and economic demands for the interests of this working class that was largely excluded from German society, but it also became the party of political reforms and political demands, became the party of democracy. The two seem to be going hand in hand. So you have this class, and this class is deprived of the franchise, but as soon as the class gets the right to vote, they're all voting for the parties that are in their class interest. So it was a confluence of kind of really good timing, previous radical traditions that were very strong, you know, coming from uh, these, this frustrated revolution of 1848 in which German Republicans are, are not able to to overthrow their kind of aristocratic system. But they also found out in the process that the liberal bourgeoisie, so-called, were not, in fact, very reliable advocates of reform. And all this concludes a layer of the workers' movements to, to come to the conclusion that they, in fact, had to fight for their interests by themselves. So they had to form, in other words, their own independent working class political parties. So it was both a class party, you know, a party that would take this isolated, growing majority of society and represent its interests, but it also was really an ideological project because this class party would be fighting for a form of, of economic relations that better fit their needs, you know, kind of socialism. So it wasn't, in other words, like the British Labour Party, which when it finally emerged, was definitely a working class party, but was not really ideologically socialist. On the other hand, it wasn't like some of these American parties, like the SLP, uh, Socialist Labour Party, that were, in fact, not really rooted in the labouring classes in mass, but were really amalgamations of just like different kind of very radicals of all stripes and particularly, you know, uh, various types of, of socialists. So it managed to be both a very ideological, very left wing party, but also a party that had a real mass base. And for decades, it was the largest party in terms of its vote share in the German parliament. And they were able to maintain this presence, even despite the fact that the entirety of German election law was about forestalling this seemingly inevitable social democratic majority because elites 
as well as socialists, seem to think that as soon as this majority class starts to get majority representation, it would mean the end of economic privilege for the minority. That was something that both the right and the left thought would happen. And it turns out that that was not the case. Well, I want to get into why that wasn't the case. The first place to start is that serious divisions ultimately emerged within the SPD. One leader named Eduard Bernstein became the first major revisionist of Orthodox Marxism. And his arguments really foreshadowed the social democracies in the post-war sense of the term that, that would take root after World War II. Bernstein looked around and saw that capitalism wasn't collapsing. Quite to the contrary, it was flourishing. What did Bernstein identify as a problem with Orthodox Marxism? And what error, in turn, did comrades of his like Rosa Luxemburg find that Bernstein made in the process? So Bernstein, in fact, was, to begin with, a figure of, of orthodoxy within the party. So he was co-author, along with Karl Kotsky, of the Erfurt program, uh, which was the party's program from the early 19, uh, 1890s onward. And this was this is the classic kind of document of Marxist orthodoxy. And this was a document that, you know, almost every single other workers' party in Europe copied and emulated and made their made their own. So part of this document had this idea that capitalist collapse was kind of imminent. Contradictions were heightening. The working class was growing in, in confidence and power. At the same time, the capital system was becoming more and more unstable. It was going to collapse, and the working class movement would be there and ready to fill in the void and, and advance as it collapsed. This is obviously a caricature of, of, of the, the argument, but that's kind of the core of it. So Bernstein, of course, his real insight was he realized that capitalism had mechanisms of stability. He realized that the position of workers within capitalism, far from deteriorating, were in fact improving. He realized that workers were actually benefiting from when capitalism was stable, and they were able to make wage and economic demands, as well as make kind of broader social demands from the stable system, and in particular from their bargaining with trade unions. So, in other words, his revisionism was an attempt to reconcile kind of tension within the SPD, which this party was advocating a very radical program of overthrow, or at least had this apocalyptic vision, while at the same time, most of its activity was this day-to-day battle for reforms and for, you know, just improvements on the shop floor. And they often didn't go hand in hand, because if you're trying to build a mass workers party with trade unions at your core, these trade unions need to maintain strike funds. They need to figure out when to use those strike funds. They need profitable employ- employers in order to make wage demands. So in other words, his revisionism was trying to account for the continued resilience and stability of capitalism and also to try to reconcile some of these day-to-day practices and the day-to-day impulses towards conservatism that organizing within capitalism often demands and this kind of radical ambition of overthrow. It didn't mean, by the way, that Bernstein didn't believe in socialism or believe in some sort of other system. He just had a, a different idea of how we would get there and also the timetable. So he was correct, obviously, in recognizing 
the built-in mechanisms of stability. And I think often as socialists, we still today think about capitalism as being driven primarily by its contradictions and being driven uh, primarily by its instability. So we think a lot about capitalist crises. And not so much about the fact that capitalism so far as of yet tends to reconcile those contradictions. Exactly. It's an incredibly stable system. And one of the reasons for its stability is what I was alluding to before. It's the fact that workers and capitalists are dependent on each other, but it's an asymmetrical dependency. So in other words, your boss needs your individual contribution to the labor process less than you need your grocery money. So you need your job more than your boss needs your particular job. And as a whole, even you and your, your co-workers collectively, even let's say you organize together in a union, you still need a profitable firm to survive. You, in other words, can't just say, oh, we're going to have a mass strike tomorrow and we're going to get rid of all our bosses and we're going to do all this tomorrow and uh, we'll be in a better, better situation. So in other words, this condition of dependence actually makes it so that workers will modulate their wage demands and keep their firms profitable. And at the wider level, unions have to do that too. And even social democratic parties, once they get to power, have to keep in mind these constraints. So it's, it seems like self-censorship, but that makes it seem like just a moralistic thing um, or just a level of, of rhetoric. But in fact, what it means is that we modulate our demands because we know that if the system collapses, it will mean the common ruin of both capitalists and workers alike. There's all sorts of other ways in which capital bounces back after periodic crises. So it's both prone to the crises, but it's also prone to mechanisms of, of re-stabilization. So what I think he missed was that capitalism was not just on this slowly progressive mission where things were steadily advancing to the point where the workers' movement was getting stronger, but capitalism was also stable, and there was more wealth and riches, and this workers' movement was going to keep administrating reforms, and like in a straight line, we would get to socialism eventually. What he missed, but Karl Kotsky and, and Luxembourg and the other radical uh, critics of his did miss, was that it actually took politics and agency to win these reforms, and it took taking power away from the capitalist class and giving it to the workers' movement, which meant that you would need, of course, to know when to retreat, when to consolidate your gains, but you would also need to, at certain moments, take advantage of crisis and push forward new radical demands. So Luxembourg and Karl Kotsky were really interested in the 1905 Russian Revolution, and the creation of these Soviets and the creation of this idea of the, the mass strike. And there were mass strikes going on in Belgium and other places around political demands. So they didn't want to just fight for economic demands. They were willing to take big risks to fight for political demands too. And they also knew that capitalists would always try to roll back the gains we already made. So it's not just that you take two steps forward, uh, then you could stop look around, you know, pick a few roses and, you know, kind of figure out what your next your next move. In fact, fighting against capitalism isn't like storming a fortress. Our, our target is always fluid and always and always moving. So he definitely was right in his pessimism that the system was going to collapse 
because what he thought of and a lot of socialists used to think of as a very mature, advanced system that's ripe for collapse, we now think of as you know, a very early capitalist system, right? We don't think of the world being ripe for socialism uh, 120 years ago, right? It was a sort of millenarian belief. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think this was a common belief among a lot of the, the movement. And it was one of the things that I think that gave it strength, right? This idea that we're going to have socialism in our time and we're advancing towards it. And what was said by one of the early leaders of German social democracy at a party conference in the 1890s was that, you know, he thought that almost everyone in the room would be there for kind of that great day of liberation, the great day of socialism. So it was really like a belief where, you know, Christians might think that one day Christ will return to earth. But socialists kind of knew for certain, and they could see the results because they could see their poll numbers going up every single election cycle. They could see their unions increasing. They could see this class that had no power in society that didn't even exist a few decades ago now seeming like it's going to become the dominant class in society. And this rise of the class was associated with the rise of a political movement. So you could you could see the case for this feeling and optimism. At the same time, you also see a system you know, capitalism without with only a very rudimentary welfare state, with intense violence and destruction, with, you know, just still working people to, to death and, and crippling bodies and and not seeming like it's capable of reforms. And and also there not being really, you know, any hope of taking power and administering the capitalist state in the interest of workers, which post war democracy would later figure out, at least in limited degrees, how to do. The big problem with Bernstein's ideas that was identified by, by Luxembourg and Kautsky was embodied in the union movement allied with the SPD. The, the unions took on a life of their own as they became more powerful, increasingly narrowly focused on the material interests and gains of its membership in a way that ultimately made it hostile to the party's radicalism. Explain this problem and how it developed and why Luxembourg and others on the SPD left ended up being crushed by the party's right. So this gets to the the root of what I was saying before, where you have these two contending interests and goals, and it doesn't mean that anyone's wrong in a moralistic sense. But let's say you're a trade union leader or even a trade union militant, but you're also part of this SPD and your union is affiliated with this SPD. The SPD's goal is political change at all levels. Your union's goal is, I guess, that in the abstract, but it's also very narrow, right? The interests of your, your members. Winning gains for better working conditions and pay and, and the like. So when the SPD, as part of this broader social democratic tradition, says, well, every single May Day, we go on strike. We do a strike on May Day, not for any particular demand because it's a symbolic strike. May Day belongs to the workers' movement. We exert workers' power on May Day. Now, what happens when you're a trade union leader and you say, well, we might need to go on strike in June or July for better wages, better conditions, and we keep depleting our strike fund every single May Day for this purely symbolic act. Maybe we're not going to do a May Day strike anymore. It's not an explicit rejection of social democracy, but it's a prioritizing of this narrow economic demand to this broader kind of political mission, an ideological 
mission. So obviously the goal of political leadership and what the uh, left of the SPD, the radicals were trying to do was to reconcile the two together in a kind of radical framework to explain to the workers movement that unless you continue to exert your ability to go on strike, unless you tie your demands with demands for political reforms, then in fact, it'll be easier for capitalists to erode any gains at the workplace that you make. You know, that was the argument of the left. The argument of the right was kind of saying, well, actually, in fact, they're making a lot of sense. And if we don't accommodate the needs of these trade unions and these trade union leaders, then we're going to lose that base and we're just going to become an isolated little group of ideological radicals. So these are the kind of tensions. And these tensions are rooted in just the difficulty of collective action. And we can't think of it as just in moralistic terms, like Luxembourg, Liebnik were brave, but Bernstein and these trade union leaders were cowards. Because right. it was a lot more complicated than that. And at the same time that some of these trade unionists that were not radicals, so some of the trade unionists were radicals and were fighting these ideological battles within their unions, could look and applaud, oh, you know, what Russia is doing is great, what the workers are doing in Russia is great. At the same time, they say our conditions are quite a bit different here. So this is the kind of, again, the tensions of building a movement that's trying to go beyond capitalism within within capitalism. Because unless you take care of the needs, the day-to-day needs of the working people that are supporting your movement, that's part of your trade union or voting for your party, they're going to abandon you. But unless you actually present a vision of going beyond kind of your current situation, you're going to be undermined. Or at worst, you're just going to operate like any other party. So what was the point of them supporting a working class party to begin with? So these are kind of the dilemmas that they were they were facing. The issue that that does make it seem more moral, though, is that ultimately the SPD supported workers of one nation slaughtering those of another in World War One, What was it about the Great War that caused a party that had for so long been so dedicated to militant opposition to embrace nationalism? And how did that decision shape the post-war state that they did end up leading, which, which of course, itself gave way to Nazism and then to the authoritarian communist German Democratic Republic? So... That's a big question covering a lot of a lot of decades. I guess what I would say is that one way to understand why not just the SPD, but the other parties of the Second International, the other parties of the Workers International ended up supporting their respective nations is to remember that none of them thought they were supporting war of aggression. They all managed to convince themselves that at best, even the belligerent parties at the SPD were supporting war credits, so funding for defense, and then they were advocating swift negotiations. So in other words, the German Social Democrats, in the majority at least, were afraid about Russian aggression and took at face value the fact that the German state was acting defensively and advocated the funding of this defensive posture and then advocated for negotiations. And they also tied this kind of defensive posture with this uh, attack on the barbarism of the Russian czar and these forces of authoritarianism that they thought were stacked against them. You know, British and French socialists ended up doing largely the same. 
And a lot of it, of course, was based around fears of repression, too. So on the one hand, you could risk everything you built up, your uh, legality as a party, your your vote share. And by the way, the war at the time was, was in its early days quite popular. You would risk your funds. You would risk the lives of your activists who would either be killed or imprisoned. So on the one hand, seemed to be this kind of accommodation with the system. On the other hand, was a dangerous break from the system. Um, in the United States, when the Socialist Party was, was quite already fairly weak and fairly outside the mainstream. And plus the, the fact that the United States was going to war years after World War I started. In other words, after the, the immensity of the horror was already clear, you know, it maybe was an easier decision for the American socialists. When it came to the Russian socialists, maybe you could speculate not only were both Mensheviks and Bolsheviks more ideologically disciplined and, and serious than a lot of socialists elsewhere, but perhaps part of it was the fact they were already underground, right? They already, uh, they weren't in parliament. They didn't have as much to lose. They didn't face as much um, repression from the state. They didn't even really have the option of supporting the state's war because the state was at war with them. They weren't even brought into grand coalition. So so even some German socialists saying, well, if we couldn't win um, full suffrage the way we wanted to via a general strike, maybe we'll win through participation in a war. And in a sick way, in certain conditions, they ended up getting state power and legitimacy through their participation in kind of a national coalition effort in certain instances. So in Germany, it was defeat that completely discredited German elites and bourgeois parties, and the Social Democrats are able to kind of take power afterwards. And in France, you know, in the interwar period, a social government is able to to take power too. But I think it's it's important not to underestimate the extent to which the parties were very worried about violence and repression. So Engels in, in 1889, you know, he predicted that an event of war, it would be, you know, the suppression of our movement. You know, he thought it would be overwhelmed, crushed and stamped out by violence. So it's a lot easier to convince yourself to do something horrible if you think that the outcome of not doing it would be something horrible too. And obviously, this wasn't just a regular war. You know, this was an incredibly devastating war that took tens of millions of lives. And it seemed like there was really an incredible alternative to it. So just in 1912, a couple years before the war, you had German leaders of the workers movement in France speaking in French to French workers about the need for solidarity. You had French workers in Germany speaking in Germany about how the international proletariat is a brotherhood. You had, you know, this really incredible, radically internationalist alternative that's that's developing. And you really see humanity and peace and justice represented in this working class and in its political leadership. You know, that's all taken for granted. And we shouldn't underestimate to the extent to which nationalism had made inroads in the working class as a whole and how parties like the Social Democratic Party were the only forces in society that were anti-national and were also anti-colonial in its majority and how this contended with both the elite parties that were all extremely imperialist and also generally pro-war and also sentiments that were starting to develop among the workers themselves. So mass politics when it began in Germany was just a phenomenon of the workers' movement. But later on, 
mass politics became the domain of all these parties that were fighting for the attention of, of workers. And, you know, we saw this even later on when it comes to fascism. So fascism, uh, as it's commonly told, it's true, was a really middle class kind of movement with support from elements of what Marxists call kind of the lumpen proletariat, the underclass, but it also had a lot of working class support too. But it was also mass politics. It was evil mass politics, but it was mass politics. So the torchlit march, for example, that actually had its origins in social democracy. The social democrats invented the torchlit march. <laughs> many of them who were Jewish, many of them who were who were who were, who were you know radical kind of anti-colonial activists. But the Nazis adopted it too because the Nazis, just like the left, were interested in mass spectacles and mass politics, whereas you know certain other forms of reactionary politics in the right or older forms were less interested in these these things. So obviously, it's a tragic error and you could say that the roots of this conservatism is is coming off and that maybe if a more radical stance was taken in regards to the relationship between the party and the trade unions 10 years earlier or maybe if a more radical stance is taken towards how we fight for change and there's the adoption of kind of the mass strike maybe if the left wing the party wins i think you do have a different outcome on the question of war because people like Liebnik that were on the left wing of these questions about the trade unions or also on the left wing of the questions about militancy. But ultimately, I'm not sure, as socialists, it should be especially of a concern to us that the parties that we would have supported, the mass parties of the working class, many of them, most of them, made the mistake of supporting in various forms World War I. But it's important to note these parties were not the most fervent supporters. Um, In some cases within a year or less there's an immediate and constant calls for peace and negotiations and that this war probably would have happened without their support anyway so it's a little bit of a misnomer to say that world war one was created by the workers movement it's more important just for us to remember the workers movement could have perhaps stopped and did not stop world war one and in doing so created the conditions for its own division into different kind of wings. But the seeds of this division were already there. It had been there for 15 plus years. World War I is also catastrophic for socialism in the U.S. What happened with the socialist movement, with the outbreak of World War I? What did the government do? How did the Socialist Party and its various factions respond? And, and what could it have done differently if there were options? To, to avoid that result? So the Socialist Party actually takes a brave stance of, in its vast majority, opposing World War I. And in some cases, its bravery was almost dumb bravery. So, you know, you had socialists in Oklahoma actually trying to spark an armed rebellion against U.S. state because they wouldn't support a capitalist war. And they would choose class war against the enemy at home over a capitalist war, which, of course, accomplished very little in terms of hurting the U.S. war machine. And the so-called Green Corn Rebellion just ended up destroying socialism in Oklahoma to this day. I believe there's still a statute on the books in Oklahoma that is yet to be taken out that still says you can't fly a red flag. I'm positive that this was, if this was ever kind of challenged in a court, it would be overturned. So maybe this is something for a socialist to do, you know, fly a red flag and hope that there's someone willing to prosecute you. 
Tulsa DSA. Do it. <laughs> well, Tulsa DSA, yeah. Socialism is finally making a slow comeback after, I think, Eugene Debs got, what, 16% of the vote in Oklahoma in 1912 or something like that? So you, you had, uh, at first, concerns over the fact that the war was quite popular early on among, among a lot of American workers, but the mood soured. And in fact, by 1918, you're having tremendous electoral success um, in New York and even places like Buffalo for elected socialists. So we were just a whisker away from winning the mayor's office in, in Buffalo. We won a bunch of the city council. There was a lot of other really successful races. But you have the pressure of the Red Scare. You had the banning of kind of anti-war agitation, which threw Eugene Debs into, into prison. And you have a lot of other different factors. Eventually, you have the same sort of left-right division that you see emerging in the workers' movement elsewhere, where the party splits between a more radical left and kind of a more moderate right. And the moderate right was embodied by people like Berger in Milwaukee and his sewer socialists in the left was, I guess, most powerfully embodied by the Wobblies. Uh, yeah, though some of those divisions, I would say the wobbly division and split happens earlier. That's kind of 1912, 1913. But yeah, there's there's a division between a kind of a socialist movement and later a communist movement. And this communist movement is some people who were ex-wobblies, like Reed, but also you have a lot of like especially ethnic federations of workers, like Finnish and Russian workers forming this early communist movement. But even the communist parties themselves, like the communist movement in the U.S., begins by being split into a party that's mostly around these kind of ethnic groups, Russians and, and Finns, and the one that's more more American. So it, it took the common turn, which we think of today as this like very shadowy, very bad group in Russia, to tell American socialists to unite the communist parties, to focus on racism. You know, all their advice is really, really good. Stop focusing on the IWW, focus more on trying to organize and radicalize the AFL-CIO. If you watch the movie uh, Reds, it clearly is like anti turn advice. The, the advice that Zinoviev was giving um, John Reed, but the advice that Zinoviev was giving was very common sense, good advice. And it's too bad John Reed was, was very angry about that advice. <laughs> the American socialist movement, just to step back a little, was way bigger than I think many Americans today might think, but it was never as strong here as in a lot of other places, even, and I think this is important context, amidst just massive labor militancy in the late 19th century. And there are a lot of potential answers as to why, why their socialism was never as strong here, why there was never a labor party in the U.S., a separate but related question. And it's one that people ask a lot. One potential explanation Settler colonialism dispossessed indigenous people of tons of land and provided it to white people, creating relative equality amongst white men. But that's not a that's not such a convincing explanation, given that by the late 19th century, the rise of industrial capitalism is is, is squeezing that that model. Other factors that you point to are are more contingent, like the fact that the Socialist Labor Party under Daniel DeLeon was just incredibly sectarian and ineffectual. But you also say that one of the most important reasons was just the sheer repression. I explain your overall assessment here. 
So yeah, I think I think there's. I mean, it's a very complicated question with lots of different reasons why, and it's very hard to isolate. This was the deciding factor, and why why socialism was so weak relatively in the U.S. or why there's no labor party in the U.S. Uh, one of the best books, at least in the question of why there's no labor party in the U.S., compares the U.S. not to continental Europe but to Australia, huh. thinking that we should maybe understand why Australia was able to create their. Australian Labour Party, which spells labor correctly without a without a U, um, <laughs> even though they still speak Commonwealth English. Fun fact. Yeah, because that that comparison that comparison is more revealing. Instead of comparing the, the the colony to the metropole, compare the Anglo settler colonies. Right. Exactly. So, for one thing, obviously we cannot ignore the role of racial stratification and ethnic division in making working class unity harder. That being said. We also cannot ignore the fact that there has been, throughout U.S. history, really broad-based, widely supported attempts at multiracial organizing. But the fact that there was that extra barrier of both linguistic difference and, of course, racial divisions. And racial divisions, of course, is a euphemism saying that like there was lots of anti-black racism. And just a quick caveat, the anti-black racism was specifically tied to differentiation of different sorts of labor. Yes, yes, definitely. And even the division between Catholic workers and Protestant workers. Right. If you read even quite progressive parts of the know-nothings that were very good on, let's say, the question of anti-black racism for their time, and even parts of the abolitionist movement that were very, obviously, incredibly progressive for their time on fighting slavery, there's also lots of anti-papist slurs thrown in there. So that's a that's a factor. But I think the most important thing to point out is that by the time the working class emerges in the United States, you already have white male suffrage. And a lot of these white males were already tied to parties we could call bourgeois parties. So because you already have such wide suffrage... And because these workers are already tied to existing parties, they might support socialist demands or fights like for an eight-hour day, but they're not necessarily going to vote for a new socialist party. And the socialist party cannot, as its primary mission, organize around the suffrage for workers, because so many of these workers already had the right to vote. So whereas in Sweden, in Germany, and these other countries, one of the early demands of the workers' movement was for political democracy. Here, they couldn't have that fight for political democracy. Tied to that was also the factor that the U.S. industrialized fairly early, which meant as an early industrializer that the working class movement as it's emerging in its early forms is organizing around these craft unions, not broad-based industrial unions. So... You're organizing in these little craft unions around the particular concerns of maybe skilled workers are organizing and unskilled workers are not organized. And you have this delayed fight for democracy and this fight for democracy not being tied with the struggle for industrial, broad-based industrial unionism. So a lot had to do with timing. A lot had to do with the fact that you already have this existing party system and these parties are doing everything they can to create barriers to prevent the emergence of new parties. So it made it very difficult to create a third party. And once workers started getting more involved in politics, you see actually the the collapse of things like uh, fusion voting in states across the country. Uh, Then I think 
besides for repression, the other thing I'll have to say that might seem like sophistry to kind of explain this is just defeats can be cumulative. So, in other words, it might just be completely contingent that at certain moments in the 1890s, for instance, or in the 1920s, we had the chance to create a labor party. And either we didn't create it or we defeated in our attempt to create a labor party. And it's not just that these are separate, isolated defeats that we suffer every 20, 30 years when we try to do something. But in fact, the defeats are cumulative. One defeat makes it harder and harder to do another. And once you're in a position where it really seems impossible to create a labor party, where the laws are stacked against you, the whole electoral system is stacked against you, then it eventually starts to make sense to make do trying to create the shell of a labor party within the Democratic Party. So in other words, the cost of exit became really, really great. And probably the last time when it made sense in the medium term even to leave the Democratic Party and to create a new party in the independent interests of the workers you know, movement was in the post-war period. And that was scuttled for various reasons. So it's almost as if for those of you who are students of British history, what if the Labour Party in its early years never managed to overtake the Liberal Party? What if they never created the NHS? Yeah, no, but even before that, because I think it's possible the Liberals would have created some form of, of universal health care. Um, but what if you had to create some sort of shell of a Labour Party within the Liberal Party? Uh, and, and and the irony is the dream of new labor was essentially rolling back the clock and just merging back together liberals and, and labor demands into a unified party. So our struggle has always been the struggle for independent working class political action. The idea that working class people have distinct interests for the interests of our bosses. And it doesn't make sense for workers in the 30s and 40s and 50s. You know, workers of all races, white and black and brown workers were all in the tent of the Democratic Party, but so was big oil. You know, so was Xerox. You know, so was um, a Standard Oil. You know, our line is that doesn't make sense. But actually, if you can't create an alternative and without kind of jeopardizing cycle after cycle, then us just saying that is just a slogan. So when I first came up in the socialist movement, you know, I guess at this point, 15, 16 years ago, I was quickly introduced to an old rhyme that goes something like, break with the elephant, break with the ass, build a party of the working class, which is a nice rhyme, but it's just rhetoric unless it's actually viable for, for people to do that without risking, let's say, what we have now, which is, you know, a really dangerous right-wing uh, government that'll only make it more difficult for us to organize in the future. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has tons of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Empire of Borders, The Expansion of the U.S. Border Around the World by Todd Miller. The 21st century has witnessed the rapid hardening of international borders. Security, surveillance, and militarization are widening the chasm between those who travel where they please and those whose movements are restricted. But that is only part of the story. As journalist Todd Miller reveals in Empire of Borders, the nature of U.S. borders has changed. 
These boundaries have effectively expanded thousands of miles outside of U.S. territory to encircle not simply American land, but Washington's interests. Resources, training, and agents from the United States infiltrate the Caribbean and Central America. They reach across the Canadian border, and they go even farther afield, enforcing the division between Global South and North. The highly publicized focus on a wall between the United States and Mexico misses the bigger picture of strengthening border enforcement around the world. Empire of Borders is a tremendous work of narrative investigative journalism that traces the rise of this border regime. It delves into the practice of extreme vetting, which raised the possibility of ideological tests and cyber policing for migrants and visitors, a level of scrutiny that threatens fundamental freedoms and allows, once again, for America's security concerns to infringe upon the sovereign rights of other nations. In Syria, Guatemala, Kenya, Palestine, Mexico, the Philippines, and elsewhere, Miller finds that borders aren't making the world safe. They are the front line in a global war against the poor. Empire of Borders, the expansion of the U.S. border around the world by Todd Miller. Out now from Verso Books. We we did a whole interview on the October Revolution in Soviet Union a while back, so I don't want to get too deep into it, but I want to talk a little bit about it. As we discussed at the top of the interview, Marx, like many other socialists, was was far more concerned with critiquing capitalism than in laying out what socialism might look like. And and you note in the book that Lenin famously critiqued reformists on the grounds that, quote, the working class cannot simply lay hold of the state machinery and wield it for its own purposes— but but you note that Lenin's critical eye didn't extend so much to what a socialist state might look like and how it might avoid the severe repression that characterized capitalist states. You write, quote, the Bolsheviks focused on seizing power, not exercising it. To what extent did this failure to think through socialism in general and the socialist state in particular lay the groundwork for what became Stalinism? So I think the key element in what, what happened to the Bolsheviks was just the extreme scarcity and destruction of, uh, you had civil war, you had the devastation of World War One, and you just had a society that, that far from socialism emerging out of the abundance of capitalism from the highest point of workers' organization and capitalism, you have socialism emerging in just a scene of total chaos. So one lie they tell you about the Bolsheviks is that it was just a coup by a very small group that had no popular legitimacy among workers that claimed the state in the interest of workers. That's not true. Fake news. Yeah, that, that's, it, is, it is very fake news. The Bolsheviks did have a real base in the working class movement. It was really an organically working class party with huge degrees of popular support and a lot of workers who viewed the Bolsheviks as the only way to make good on the promises of the February Revolution, to bring about land reform, to create peace, to do all these things that the February Revolution promised it was going to do, but what wasn't happening. The problem is the workers' movement was really only 3% of Russia 
uh, in terms of population. You know, that that's what the working class population was. Uh, it was centered in cities like St. Petersburg and, and Moscow. The Bolsheviks did have some base in the peasantry, but it wasn't the major party of the peasantry. So you have a worker state that represents 3% in a society that's largely peasant base. And beyond that, you have a devastated society in which there's been almost total economic collapse. So if you're put into power in this situation, your primary goal is to restore production to, in other words, create the condition for any civilization at all, much less an advance from capitalism to socialism. So if you do that, then you need to figure out, well, how do we make sure that production is maintained? Well, initially, the Bolsheviks didn't just nationalize everything and say, workers, take over your factories, and the, or the state will take it over and there'll be a plan. Initially, they actually wanted to maintain even some form of a, I guess you'd call it a mixed economy, where certain commanding heights of the economy are taken over by the state. But they were fine with a lot of firms staying under private rule. In part, workers just started taking over their own firms. In part, capital just fled, seeing that there was just a socialist revolution. In part, there was sabotage. There was a lot of things going on there. But also, there was a matter of just making cities productive again, which meant figuring out a way to transfer wealth from the countryside and take it to the cities. So one way that has been historically done in times of crisis and chaos was forced grain requisitions. And this had happened under all sorts of Russian regimes throughout history. So eventually the Bolsheviks are forced to figure out how to get to the countryside and take grain and bring it to the cities. And they, in other words, are figuring out ways in which they're going to restore productivity, which means both being authoritarians when it comes to administrating workplaces in the cities on their base, um, plus being authoritarians when it comes to treating the peasantry a certain way, and they would try to just target certain elements of the peasantry. But, you know, on the ground, it was very difficult to tell who was a middle peasant, who was a wealthy peasant, who was a poor peasant. And a lot of those kind of uh, schema didn't really translate to real life, especially since, you know, even a lot of these so-called kulaks were, you know, no richer than your average really poor farmer in like a place like the Dakotas at the time. So, in other words, you have socialism turned into a way to maintain production. At the same time, they still had to figure out a way to keep fighting a war in their Western front, in part because Germany was not willing to come to the table necessarily with a country that they knew was in total disrepair. And the Allies were also, you know, really wanted the Bolsheviks out so they would maintain their Eastern front. So for that reason and for an opposition to socialism and the threat of socialism, you have a massive kind of allied intervention. Bolshevik actions create a big counter-revolution of people uh, ranging from people who want to restore the Tsar to people who had more moderate visions of change and this kind of unholy alliance of the, the white army that in its own way is quite brutal. And people forget that the right wing of the white army was really the most dangerous, genocidal, anti-Semitic force, you know, out there. And there you have the white terror and the red terror. So you have just kind of chaos in all forms. But a lot of the roots of the chaos is the scarcity that the Bolsheviks are, are under. So it's really hard to imagine a functioning socialism of any type in this condition. 
And eventually, what starts to happen is that in this condition where you need harsh and immediate action, any form of democracy starts to perish. You have this kind of bunker mentality. And as many people predicted would happen, power becomes concentrated into fewer and fewer hands in kind of these emergency conditions. And the Bolsheviks go from even just having the support of a large chunk of the workers' movement to that workers' movement barely existing. Because a lot of the workers that were in the cities just kind of fled back to the countryside. A lot of their most important soldiers died on the front. You have internal divisions in the, the socialist movement. You have many cruel mistakes by the Bolsheviks. It's just a situation of of utter chaos. It's kind of the, the worst condition in which to try to construct socialism. And that's really why the Bolsheviks didn't conceive of what they were doing early on as trying to construct socialism. They conceived of it as a holding action. They would have to take power because they didn't think there was an alternative to them taking power. And they would try to hold off until revolution came elsewhere to save them. But when it didn't come, they had to figure out how to create their own version of bunker socialism. Was there a fork in the road that could have been taken that would have led to things turning out differently, more humanely, more democratically, more, frankly, socialistically? And did anyone around that time see that see that road and urge that it be the one taken? Yeah, I think there was a contingent of both moderate Bolsheviks and also left-wing Mensheviks that believed in convening some sort of all-socialist government to take power away from the really hobbled provisional government, um, at least in theory, and, you know, kind of create some sort of all-Soviet government. There was there were elements of this. But when the Mensheviks had the opportunity to do so in September, they basically refused to take that gamble and to continue to cast their lot with the provisional government. The provisional government itself was always under constant threat of a right-wing coup. So it, it didn't seem like this provisional government was going to hold, and it seemed like what was going to follow it would be a dictatorship of the right or dictatorship of the left. Even after the Bolsheviks took power, though, there could have been the opportunity to convene some sort of government that comprised both Bolsheviks and Mensheviks and various stripes of, of socialist revolutionaries. And I think we could have imagined maybe some form of the new economic program, which was a way, in other words, to still take wealth from the countryside and bring it to the cities, but do so not through forced requisition, but through slow, gradual, unequal exchange. So in other words, you would still have mechanisms where it made rational sense for peasants to produce extra product and to sell that product to cities and in return get industrial goods, but there'd still be a net flow of resources to the cities to restore production. And then if there was a, a civil war, and I think you can't really blame the revolutionaries for the counter-revolution, you might have had a broader base coalition actually make those changes. You might have actually had a functional constituent assembly of 600 plus you know, Soviets. You might have had some sort of more robust form of democracy. It wasn't hard to predict the creation of of some sort of dictatorship out of the total dislocation and chaos of the, the early years. Tons of Mensheviks and even some Bolsheviks predicted the rise of a Stalin-like figure. No one predicted quite how many people Stalinism would kill or what would happen after, but I think there was a route. And clearly there was an economic program that could have slowly taken Russia 
out of the total devastation of war and restored production because we, in fact, actually saw that economic program work. From 1921 to 1927, you see the rebounding of Russian industry to pre-war levels through the new economic program. That was coupled with an increasingly authoritarian turn in the Soviet government, but I guess you could call it a slowly rebounding authoritarian government that Stalin took power in and drove to extreme chaos in terms of the forced collectivization uh, and the violence of that, the ensuing famine, which claimed tens of millions of lives, and just, you know, taking the difference between an authoritarian government that maybe doesn't give you full political freedom, but allows culture and the arts to really flourish into, you know, the most horrific totalitarian government the world had ever seen. So there was definitely a different option. And for a large part of the 20s, the Soviet Union was, seems like, moving towards it before, you know, the horrors of Stalinism. Stepping back to look at what sort of general lessons we can draw from that experience, how can socialists holding state power exercise the coercive power necessary to beat back capitalist reaction, which, as you've detailed in the Soviet case is is real and and lethal and potentially very overwhelming how can they do so without sliding into authoritarianism and also how can we move beyond these these false dichotomies between political and economic freedom that that allow for these things to even be considered trade-offs in the first place because you argue that these reactive policies don't just undermine civil liberties for the sake of socialist economics They also, as Cuba today makes clear, undermine the basis of popular support necessary to defend those economic gains when the reaction keeps coming. And also, as the Soviet example shows, the reactive measures undermine the worker control that's supposed to be at the heart of socialism. Well, I think some of the lessons of the Russian Revolution are overstated because we are in a very different situation today. We're in a country with a rich tradition of civic democracy. Um, And obviously, we don't like aspects of American democracy because it's not democratic enough. But we also can't take for granted the fact that we've won a lot of democratic rights and that these victories are are precarious. We need to respect and hold on to and defend in order to expand those rights. But also, I think beyond that, we need to have and maintain a democratic mandate. So when counter- revolution or some sort of pushback happens, we need to be able to confront that by saying we have a mandate of 60 plus percent of the population and we're dealing with a reaction by a minority of the population that is using its economic power to try to undermine this democratic mandate. That being said, there are certain unalienable rights that even our opposition has the right to uh, speak freely, the right to organize, the right to have a free press, and so on. Uh, So we need, in other words, reinforce ourselves as small-D Democrats. We're democratic socialists, and we're Democrats not because we believe that this is good rhetoric instrumentally, but in fact, we believe that democracy is like oxygen for the socialist movement. And we also believe that a free society is really important to prevent excesses and devastation. So one common thing in in both the Soviet and the experience during uh, Maoist China was the fact that 
you have mass famine on a scale that even some of the planners and managers don't even know because it's such a repressive society and there's no free civil society, so information is not traveling. So uh, I think I think part of it is this commitment to a bedrock set of civil rights, a commitment to a free civil society, the idea that any change that we create must by nature be a change that can be rolled back by a democratic majority. Uh, so this is actually the creation of, of consensus and hegemony and also figuring out what rights are we trying to take away from our enemies. So I will be perfectly honest about wanting to see a world without capitalists, meaning the thing that makes people capitalists, their power over other people at the point of production, you know, that's something that I want to take away, that wealth and that power. But their rights as human beings, their rights to express themselves, to dissent, to even organize their own little political party that I hope wouldn't get more than 5% of the vote, you know, these are intrinsic to any kind of vision of uh, just society. So, in a sense, one important lesson we should get from the Bolsheviks is that we can't just conquer, uh, think about these things in the extreme abstract. We can't just say, well, socialism will be easy to figure out. The only hard part is taking power away from the capitalists. Because, in fact, there's a lot of questions that go unresolved and need to be figured out in the social society. So we need to be thinking about what would a socialist theory of jurisprudence be? What, in other words, are inheritances of the old society that are, in fact, non-exploitative or useful inheritances that we need to continue on? Because socialism can't just be a year zero break where everything that exists now is bad because the system as a whole isn't good. Uh, therefore, we just throw away everything we started new. I would imagine that large aspects of socialist jurisprudence would be taken from our present jurisprudence, right? <laughs> you know, and... And all these other things we would need to figure out. So, for example, what is parliamentary democracy? Obviously, as socialists, we want new forms of democratic participation that, that are more direct, that involve community assemblies, that involve workplace democracy. But is a representative parliament also not a form of working class rule? Certainly elites in, in places like the United States even didn't want to expand suffrage by themselves as kind of a ploy to bamboozle workers. In fact, we had to fight for these rights. Maybe, in fact, for certain offices, for certain jobs, it actually makes sense to have representative and not direct democracy. And we can't go to meetings all the time. Yeah, exactly. We, we often just don't think seriously enough about what what it should look like. And I guess what I'm calling for is a thoughtful reconciliation of aspects of both socialist and liberal thoughts. So we reject the portions of liberalism that in effect just reinforce the power of capital and the power of a few to exploit and oppress many people. But we don't reject all of our liberal inheritance because both socialism and liberalism have our common ancestor in the great enlightenment struggles. And Part of those Enlightenment struggles was the battle for a free civil society. Part of those Enlightenment struggles was the idea that actually, in fact, there are certain things that are individual rights that are not bound to the collective. You can't democratically take away 
my right to speak freely or my right to to do something that's not exploiting or or oppressing others. My vision of what free speech would mean in a social society isn't that different than like clear and present danger or something, right? Like don't incite violence on a particular individual. Don't yell fire in a crowded theater. But besides that, you know, have have fun. You could even advocate the restoration of capitalism, just like today, you could advocate the restoration of the monarchy. But good luck convincing Americans that we need to amend uh, our constitution and put in a, a monarch. We prefer to vicariously enjoy the UK's for some reason. <laughs> exactly, exactly. God, those are disgusting people. My only, uh, I take away what I what I said about unalienable rights when it comes to that particular family. But, <laughs> yeah. What what the Cold War in the Soviet past has obscured, amongst other things, is that the closest a country may have ever gotten to democratic socialism, you write, was in Sweden, and that Swedish history is really a place where we should be looking for lessons. And you write that people often attribute Swedish social democracy's exceptional achievements to something exceptional about Sweden. I think the most pernicious argument is that it only works because of the country's racial homogeneity, which is now you know, being used to explain the, the the rise of the far right there. But but you write that the key difference for Sweden was actually just that it industrialized late. Explain in general terms what what happened in Sweden and why such a powerful social democracy took root in the country. Well, there's a lot of reasons why Swedish democracy Uh, evolved the way it evolved. So it's not just one factor. I think it definitely was helped along by the fact that it was a late industrializer, which meant that you had this emergence of a workers movement that was a mass workers movement that, in other words, organized both unskilled and skilled workers together. And that this coincided with the creation of this ideological currents around socialism. So you have the emergence of quite a modern social democratic movement, along with kind of a modern mass workers movement. And it's important to remember that Sweden was, in fact, one of the most backwards and reactionary countries in in Europe. It was incredibly violent, incredibly unequal, and Swedish elites weren't giving up, you know, a single a single inch, just like Russian elites. So a lot of the early struggles of this broad-based social democratic party and this trade union federation, the LO, that emerged alongside it, was to create kind of this form of organization for workers that were shut out from the state that had no forms of democratic participation. And the first battle for Swedish social democracy, the battle that took decades, was this battle for full political democracy. And once political democracy was won, then this party that had just won workers' political democracy would then fight for an an actual different social arrangement, kind of a social and economic democracies as well. But they didn't accomplish their bargains by just being in parliament. In fact, they were locked out of parliament in the early years. They did so by mass strikes, by demonstrations, by creation of a new identity of worker solidarity. So a lot of it just took, you know, it took politics. And even beyond that, in the 1930s, the prelude to the creation of these social democratic parties were really mass strikes and demonstrations. So to the extent we think of Sweden today as a humanized system, it's been humanized by the efforts of the workers' movement. But then they had to figure out, all right, what do you do once you're in power? And the real question was, well, how do you be in power 
without just saying we could break and create our own political economy. We could create a political economy just of an entire society run by workers and planned because that didn't seem viable for them within one country. And that was the, the real interest in debates that started in Sweden with the first creation of a social democratic government in the 1930s. And initially, you write that mid-20th century Swedish social democracy seemed to have proved revisionists like Bernstein right. Social Democrats were managing capitalism, and they had achieved many of socialism's substantive goals without abolishing capitalism. It, explain the the model that had consolidated in the mid-20th century, and then how the consensus behind that model came under attack from labor and capital alike in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, I think my quote definitely understates the extent to which even Bernstein wanted to go beyond capitalism. But I think one way to put it is that Swedish Social Democrats started to think about not the means by which they were going to pursue activity as determining whether or not it's more or less socialist, but their ends. So in other words, they said, well, here are the things we want to see in our in our society. Here are our demands. And Sure, if nationalization is a route to do this, we will look into nationalization. But if we can do it through some other forms, we, that would be a functional socialism. You know, it would be a society in which we are harnessing the power of capital to meet our immediate social demands. So we are going to win healthcare. We're going to win education rights. We're going to win all these kind of uh, benefits, and we're going to figure out how to accomplish these things. And we're going to not necessarily assume, like a lot of socialists had assumed in the interwar period, that the means would necessarily be state nationalization. So part of this was, was kind of a really a series of very innovative uh, strategies. So in the 1930s, they figure out what I guess you would call like counter-cyclical economic policies that are not Keynesian, but come from similar roots. Uh, then later on in the post-war period, you see the emergence of a Ren Minor plan, which uses the power of sectoral bargaining in order to make the whole system run. So often from afar, when we think about Swedish social democracy, we just think, oh, the state does a lot, right? But in fact, the fuel of this arrangement came from the workers' movement itself, the trade union movement, and not necessarily from the state. So... The way it worked was essentially the sectoral bargaining means essentially you are committed to equal pay for equal work. And what that means is that if I'm working on an assembly line doing something with auto parts at a Volvo factory, I'm doing the same work as someone down the road at a Saab factory. Now, Within just narrow any labor agreement, you know, that, that you would sign, let's say in the US, well, you would set the same rate for everybody working at that Volvo factory doing the same job. That's what we mean by equal pay for equal work. But logically, by the principles of solidarity, why wouldn't someone working at a Saab factory down the road be earning the same as someone doing the same work at a Volvo factory? So you would set the same wage patterns across the sector. And this sounds like it's just a purely ideological thing, which it is in fact, but it also serves a very important role 
for the economy. So what it does is it squeezes inefficient firms and it gives excess profits to firms that are very efficient. So in other words, if there's three different firms, and I don't know three Swedish auto manufacturers, so I'll have to use U.S. ones. And let's say you have GM, you have Ford, and you have Chrysler. So let's say GM is the most efficient firm, and uh, Ford is a middling efficiency, and Chrysler is the least efficient firms. So what sectoral bargaining would do is set your wage demands at the level of Ford. The, the middling firm. And what this would mean is that, you know, you're paying your workers at Ford who are doing this work $20 an hour, and the workers at Ford, based on their bargaining power, could probably demand that $20 an hour. That's what they would do. The workers at Chrysler would probably only be able to demand $15 an hour because their firm is less efficient, therefore less profitable. But because of the sectoral agreement, they would also get $20 an hour, the workers at GM might be able to demand $25 an hour because they're in a more profitable and efficient firm, but they're also going to get paid $20 an hour. So what this does is it squeezes Chrysler because Chrysler potentially either needs to innovate and figure out new, um, more efficient labor techniques, or it's going to go out of business. And if Chrysler, let's say, goes out of business then those workers are going to be absorbed by the state sector, maybe retrained through active labor market policies. And guess where they're going to go? They're going to probably go to GM because GM is now has excess profits. There's this extra $5 that GM would have been giving out that, that it's able to use to expand production and to become even more efficient and to grow faster. So in other words, It's a system that is based on kind of an ideological thing in the working class movement, this demand for equal pay for equal work. It definitely needs a strong state uh, and strong welfare protections to work, but it also ends up being really efficient and really profitable. And it's why Swedish capital actually manages to come out quite good in this period, too. But this system couldn't last forever. So in part, one of the core contradictions was that this system was making workers more secure and more powerful. Swedish workers had a tremendous welfare state. So the other thing to mention is, of course, all this profit being generated by the corporations are being taxed at a very high rate, and this tax is being used to fund a really expansive welfare state. But Swedish workers were starting to demand more and more things. So a Leninist might have expected that a welfare state would just make workers complacent. It would buy them off. It would make them prone to, you know, just losing some of their militant edge. And, you know, back then, uh, Leninists were embedded in the working class movement. So they themselves were workers and all their families were workers. So they would think of it as like a mixed blessing, right? They would be like, oh, you know, there's good things. And, you know, it's a result of, of working class organization, but it might forestall our final kind of radical victory. In fact, what ended up happening was that this system made workers start to feel really comfortable in their situation. So let's say we're both workers doing very comparable jobs, getting comparable pay in a comparable economic situation. And I'm in Britain, a country with the NHS, and you're a worker in the U.S. with an employer-sponsored health insurance policy. All things being equal, knowing nothing else about our situations, 
who's more likely to, if there's something at work that needs changing, if wages and conditions deteriorate, who's more likely to go on strike? The one who can fall back on their government-provided health care. Exactly, exactly. So it's kind of common sense if you put it that way, where actually winning things doesn't necessarily make you kind of more quiescent. It actually might make you more willing to fight back and to assert your own power. If you're in a condition with very low unemployment, with a state sector that's really large, it could absorb you if you ever have to leave the private sector, with almost universal unionization, with broad-based social guarantees for healthcare and education, all these other things. You know, no wonder by the late 1960s, Swedish workers start to go on strike, but not over wages and conditions, but off over questions of industrial democracy. So in other words, this compact, this sectoral bargaining compact that's forged between Swedish employers, the SAF, their employer federation, and the LO, the main blue-collar trade union federation that's formed in 1938 called the Basic Agreement, starts to be violated by 1967, 1968, and it's violated not from the right or from the employers, but it starts to be violated by the workers' movement themselves that are violating a basic term of this agreement, which is allowing management's right to manage. Later on, you even have a, a mass of wildcat strikes and things like that. And you, you see a mini version of this happen everywhere across the West. It's like Lordstown, as I was just reading a Sarah Jaffe article on, but Lordstown with a massive welfare state to fall back on. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. So you have very tight labor market. You have a big welfare state. You had have a long tradition of worker organizing. You have a nominally left left wing or an actually left wing kind of social democratic government in power. You have all these conditions, which leads leads you to kind of want to fight back. Beyond that, though, the agreement is starting to be questioned from the right, from the employer federation itself. So if you're a Swedish employer between 1938 and, let's say, even 1967, 1968, you could look at your situation in comparison to one of your colleagues in France. And you could say, all right, I'm getting hit by lots of regulations and lots of taxes. And, you know, there's certain things that are worse, but at least I have industrial peace. So what I've given up for the welfare state, what I'm paying in taxes is, in fact, steady returns and industrial peace. When the industrial peace goes and these workers keep making more and more militant wage demands and they're cutting in, making inroads into my profitability, then I, I really, you know, the system isn't really working for me like it used to. And essentially what Swedish capital starts to do is they start to no longer reinvest their profits. They go on basically a capital strike. So when we think of the power of the ruling class, when we think of the power of capitalists, often our mind gets very dramatic. We think about the really horrific displays of capitalist power. We think about the coup of Allende in 1973. We think of the most dramatic thing that capital can do. But the way capital really undermines workers' governments has historically been through just this much more subtle process of withholding investment. Because Again, workers and capitalists are dependent on each other, but it's an asymmetrical dependency. We, under capitalism, are dependent on capitalists convening workers together and creating the venues where goods and services are produced. We're dependent on capitalists being profitable so that we could tax them and then use that tax revenue 
in order to fund our social programs. So what happens when they stop to invest? At the same time, the Swedish workers movement can say, well, GM, you are actually now hoarding profits, not just your regular profits as a capitalist, but you're hoarding excess profits that are the result of not your workers' weak bargaining power at the point of production, but the fact that we have the sectoral arrangement. Whereas before, if you were taking your extra $5 that you were getting in this sectoral arrangement and you were reinvesting that in your expanding production, now we're seeing unemployment grow. You're not expanding production. You're not investing. There's all sorts of contingent stuff going on, like Swedish capitals now facing an increasingly internationalized economy. Uh, there's the OPEC crisis happening. So there's this, this whirlwind of stuff going on where both capitalists and workers are discontent. So eventually, out of the yellow, the, the May Trade Union Federation in Sweden emerges this idea called the Meidner Plan and it's brainchild of uh, the LO as a whole, but in particular, the same Meidner who helped create the original Meidner plan in the 1950s, 1953. And this is a plan to gradually socialize wealth in the means of production. Yeah. So basically, the proposal was this this kind of purchase of shares slowly and gradually over time. Eventually, it would have meant that within a couple decades, all of Swedish industry, or at least firms over 50 people, would have been collectively owned by these wage earner funds. It would be under the direction of the trade unions. Obviously, this is a bridge too far. So it's used to summon all the scaremongering by the right wing in Sweden. The Employers' Federation starts to mobilize even mass protests against it. So the largest protest, I believe, to date in Sweden was a protest in the early 1980s organized by the Employers' Federation against this proposal. Eventually, a watered-down version of it is finally adopted. But one of the tensions that happens is that the LO, the Trade Union Federation, is fully behind this. But the SAP... The Swedish Social Democratic Party, which is associated with the LO, but is actually the ones governing, is only tepidly behind it. I hate to speak ill of the, the dead, but Olopama was also kind of like very tepid about this. So there's, there was definitely a crisis of, of the leadership in the Social Democratic Party. But again, this has less to do with your personal temperament, um, but also the fact that capital is all this power to withhold investment. And you're now doing some of this existential threat to capital. And this gets back to the core dilemma of social democracy. You write that social Democrats, quote, thought that they had abolished the business cycle through state intervention and forgot a core tenet of Marxism that the contradictions of capitalism and its tendency towards crisis cannot be resolved within the system. And you write that their role in managing that system required them to defend profitability and thus gave them this bias for all the right reasons, maybe not, you know, not because they were insufficiently brave or whatever, but but towards stability over mobilizing their own base. But that but that bias towards stability ultimately undermined the base that would have been necessary to push through this plan for total expropriation. Yeah. So you have right here with the minor plan, a left social democratic solution to the crisis of social democracy. You also have the emergence of a right social democratic solution to the crisis of social democracy, the real structural crisis that emerges in the 70s. And that is the way of the third way. You know, that's Schroeder, that's, that's Gordon Brown, that's, that's Blair. And one way to understand what the third wayers are doing is purely moralistic. You know, these are cowards who betray the working class. 
and they capitulate to capital, and they're just weak. So Tony Blair was a bastard. He was always a bastard. He was never really connected to the workers' movement. But you can't tell me that all of a sudden, everywhere around the world, something's in the water, and from the late 70s until the 90s, every single social democratic leader who emerges is just made of less certain stuff than their predecessors. No, they're operating in a different environment. So whereas the left had our solution through a further socialization, through trying to deprive capital of their ability to withhold investment to solve this crisis, the right wing of social democracy solution was, we are going to roll back the welfare state a little bit. We are going to deregulate. We are going to create conditions in which capital is able to restore their profitability. Capital didn't know how to restore its profitability, but it did know that regulations and unions were impediments to restoring its profitability. So often we think of even neoliberalism in very ideological terms. You know, there would have been neoliberalism whether or not Milton Friedman and you know the University of Chicago ever existed. Because neoliberalism didn't come from an ideology. It didn't come from their minds. It came from just the natural tendency of capital to just want freedom and flexibility in restructuring production, right? And there was a fork in the road in the 1970s, and the option was basically something like the minor plan or neoliberalism. Yeah, or something more radical than minor plan. You know, that, that was the option. Either go, go left or go right. And the gambit of the third way social democrats was, we are going to deregulate slightly. We're going to weaken union power. We're going to allow capital to restore production. Then when profitability is restored, we're going to continue to tax that profits and we're going to maintain the core planks of our welfare state. We're going to retain our socialized health system. We're going to retain our public education system. And we're going to, to basically maintain social democracy just through different means. And guess what? The gamble of the right wing of social democracy kind of works. The narrative retrenchment of the welfare state is often overstated. Sweden actually had particularly bad retrenchment. But in, in other countries, you know, much of the welfare state is intact through this, this bargain. Uh, our criticism is twofold. One is social democrats, right wing social democrats who made this bargain actually undermine their own social base. So their crisis wasn't an economic crisis, it was a political crisis, primarily. So why keep voting for the Social Democrats if they're going to do deaths by a thousand cuts? Why not vote for another party? And this kind of austerity politics also opens the road to the rise of the far right in Sweden and elsewhere. And the other argument is, of course, you know, ideological. You know, why have a society driven by the needs and prerogatives of capital when we have a route and an option to a more truly democratic and emancipatory society. But I think there was no way of just staying the course. And it's really important that we have an understanding of the emergence of neoliberalism and particularly the role of social democratic and just generally center-left parties in administrating it that isn't just moralistic. In some cases, it was the same exact people administrating the program. You know, in Jamaica, you had Michael Manley go from a radical left-wing firebrand in the 70s to in his last term when he returned to power briefly in the 90s being the administrator of an IMF back, you know, austerity program. Or Mitterrand in France in even shorter order. Yeah, exactly. I want to finish by talking about the newly powerful left challenges to right-wing social democracy, aka neoliberalism, here in the US and in the UK. 
first to define some terms. Are Bernie and Corbyn democratic socialists or social democrats, whatever that means, or something of both? Well, I mean, I think that if both Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders call themselves democratic socialists and they're democratic socialists, you know, as far as I'm, I'm concerned, the term that I like to use to describe their program, what they're doing, is class struggle social democracy. So in other words, if you just look at what they're advocating, you could potentially say, oh, this is just like mid-century social democracy. But it's not just what they're advocating, it's how they're advocating getting there and doing it. So, for example, Bernie Sanders, to give a caricature of one of his arguments, is telling people, you know, you deserve more. You know, you're not getting enough. Uh, you're dealing with longer hours, less pay. You have, you have bad health insurance. Your boss treats you like crap. And guess what? You deserve more because you're doing everything right. And the reason why you don't have enough is because millionaires and billionaires are standing in your way and they're taking too big of a, their, their share of the pie. And the way we get them uh, is we band together and we create a political revolution. You know, this is a language of polarization. This is a language of industrial peace. Stick to your basic agreement, you know, maintain industrial peace between unions and employers and the state's going to be there to mediate. If you look at what Corbyn says on foreign policy, you know, this is a man who, you know, he's so loathed by the foreign policy establishment in the UK that they're seemingly okay with British paratroopers printing out pictures of his face, putting it up on a target thing and shooting it. You know, this isn't the UK Labour Party that supported the US in the Vietnam War, who supported Cold War politics. You know, th this is uh, something radically different. So if you could say the left criticism of social democracy in the mid-century, what social democracy had become was that it was too close to imperial power, that it was kind of an agent of class conciliation. Right now, what this new class struggle social democracy is, is a radically disruptive force that is loathed by capital that's loathed by militarist forces, that's advocating something fundamentally different. And it's it's really important that we grasp the difference. And, and that is pushing reforms that open the possibility for more reforms, and that uses elections to mobilize masses rather than to tame them. Exactly, exactly. It's the start, I think, of a movement that could jumpstart not just an ideological radical left, but could really open up civil society so we can rebuild the working class institutions that we have lost. And that's what's really inspiring to us. You know, even the Sanders slogan, not me, us, obviously right now it's just rhetoric. It's just a slogan. Anyone who's been to an our revolution meeting would not describe them as hotbeds of, of radicalism or working class democracy. But what it is, I think, is a signal that, that it's up to us to exploit this electoral opening and use it to actually build a mass base. As a socialist, the way I was trained, the way I used to envision politics happening, I used to think that these electoral victories would only happen after years and years and years of patient organizing, and they would be just a manifestation of our power as a movement. Instead, this is a complete shock to me, it's kind of the opposite, where we're having this electoral breakthrough, but we don't actually have much in civil society. And we need to use this breakthrough and use this opening, which I think will only last for a few more years, to actually build the lasting institutions that will keep us going and, and keep the vision of, of justice and liberty for the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years. And, and you write that if we do win power through elections, that the key then to solving the, the riddle of social democracy that we've returned to throughout this interview is 
resuscitating and growing that mass mobilization, particularly worker mobilization, to, to counteract the, the capital strikes and other attacks that will happen from day one and even before. Yeah, I think I think just in the same way. So obviously I've been using the word dilemma a lot because I think that actually does encapsulate a lot of our organizing questions. But just like the, a trade union has to balance between the fact that it needs to demand better wages and conditions, but it has to do throw within the constraint of maintaining the profitability of their firm, the same thing applies for social democrats. They're in power, they're putting forward radical demands, but at some point they see the response of the business forces to their radical demands. And normally the response won't be capital flight or something like that. It'll be disinvestment. It'll be a host of other issues. And the Social Democrats will respond to this disinvestment by trying to win off layers of capital, by trying to accommodate, and eventually by moderating its its program. Because what is its working class base going to do? A working class base is not going to end up supporting some right-wing Republican Party. Instead, it's going to kind of stick with the moderating Social Democrats. So what we need to do is to create a countervailing force, a force that actually allows these policymakers to say that, on the one hand, I could pass my program of structural change, and capital, you don't want me to pass this program, you're going to disinvest, you're going to do your capital strikes. But if I don't pass this program, we're going to see real strikes. So you either choose to make slightly less money in this new environment or make no money. You know, in other words, you need to create the countervailing pressure that comes from the streets, that come from popular movements. And we can't basically say that our mission is over once a uh, left-wing government is in power, uh, much less a left-wing government in a country like the United States that isn't really democratic. <laughs> so we, you know, in the sense that you know, we still have to deal with the Senate. We still have to you know, deal with our intense federal system that puts a lot of power in the hands of states and localities and so on. But it's the beginning. It creates the conditions in which we could um, actually make change and and start to slowly rebuild the welfare state, rebuild the left in civil society, and get to the point that we can start to put more radical questions on the table. Because guess what? If we can't get Medicare for all, we can't get worker ownership of the means of production. You know, this isn't the defeatist posture. It's just kind of common common sense. Our goal is to advance and put more radical questions on the table. And the last thing that I'll say on this question is it's really useful to think about the historical example of the first French socialist government. So Leon Blum, the leader of the French Socialist Party, was a real radical and a real Marxist. And he eventually started to conceive of what the left could do in power in two different terms in the 1920s. And he thought of it as, as either we would exercise power or we would conquer power. So for him, the conquest of power was just workers taking over and creating a worker state, so actually winning socialism. His concept of the exercise of power was about laying the groundwork for a future conquest of power. So, you know, they would administer reforms, they would do all sorts of other things that would make a future conquest of power easier. By the 1930s, he was very acutely aware of the threat that fascism faced. In fact, he was not only France's first socialist prime minister, they still had prime ministers then, he was France's first Jewish 
leader. And just a month or so before he took power in 1936, he was accosted by a mob, beaten up, and tied to the back of a car and dragged through the streets. He nearly died. So he knew the power and the danger of the fascist right and the power and danger of reactionary forces in France. So his conception of what he was going to do in power at that point was just merely the occupation of power. We don't have the social forces. The environment is not right for us to conquer or even exercise power. So what we're going to do is just take power to deny power from the right. Because if the right takes power, it's going to be even harder for us to do anything in the future. They're going to destroy everything that we, we built to this point and then some. But once he took power, something incredible happened. Workers in France, without being ordered to do this, started going on strikes. You had a spring and summer of wildcat strikes and disruptions. And in this environment, Leon Blum was able to push through a sweeping set of reforms. And capital eventually agreed to a lot of these reforms, which did things like create the first summer holidays and, and all the rest. So you needed a combination of a left government in power and also militant workers' movement. This wasn't their plan. It wasn't conjured up. And obviously, we're in a very different condition today. I don't expect when Bernie Sanders takes power there's going to be a mass upsurge of of strikes. But I do think we need to conceive of what we're doing as both creating the power of a left that could actually win elections, but also stay mobilized in the streets. And often being in power means that in order to be loyal to our leaders, in order to, one, just being happy that there's people we trust in power, it often can be very demobilizing. Uh, so we need to be both you know, have our friends inside the state, but can but conceive of what we do as a left as primarily extra parliamentary, primarily about rebuilding our unions and rebuilding our our workplaces. And beyond that, really building a situation where when you're in a working class neighborhood, you're in a neighborhood that has a certain type of politics, a type of politics that's associated with with the left. And that used to be true for so many years in so many different parts of the, the world. But now it's now it's not. You know, if you went to a working class town in in Italy in the 1960s and 70s and you were in a working class area, you would know you were in a working class area because people might have the same manner of dress, manner of a, you know speech. They might work at the same kind of few major industries in the town. And if you were on the radical left, you could look around, you could see all the people and they would be reading the same newspapers and they'd be generally voting for either the Socialist Party or the Communist Party. And you could say, all right, so... This is a working class. I can identify the working class. This working class is broadly voting for parties that are at least nominally committed to socialism. I need to convince them to support a more radical, quicker vision of socialism, a different form of tactics and organization towards broadly the same ends. And we failed at that, but that's a lot easier of a situation than what we have today, which is kind of you know, convincing people they're even part of a class organizing that class, getting that class to the point where they even support mild social democrats as opposed to not voting and not feeling like politics can change anything um, or supporting in, in some minorities, you know, even uh, Donald Trump, you know, and, and, and voices like that. You know, it's, it's a very different situation we're in now. And we're kind of starting from scratch. And of course, it feels like we're running out of time and I, I feel that urgency, especially with climate change, especially with whatever is going on now. But 
but we need to kind of go back to the basics and, and develop a, a strategy that, that feels this urgency, but is also patient and knows that we can't just get to socialism by uh, the existing ideological left getting together and saying more and more radical things together without actually bringing a mass base of people with us. Bhaskar Sankara, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This is my favorite political podcast. <laughs> I won't ask what your favorite podcast is. Besides <laughs> for the vast majority with my kid, you drink. <laughs> Bhaskar Sunkara is founding editor and publisher of Jacobin, a columnist at Guardian US, and the author of The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that every step of real movement is more important than a dozen programs. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling friends, family, strangers, whoever about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is a huge help. 